You're listening to Lozano Smith's podcast, where we discuss important changes in the law and legal decisions that affect public agencies. Good afternoon, and uh, thank you for joining us today. Uh, We happen to be coming from the California School Board Association's annual education conference uh, this afternoon, and our discussion is going to be about a unique, um, perhaps unique, but maybe an example and model uh, to be considered throughout the state of the Charter Schools Act working as it was intended to do with innovative programs and a growing sense of healthy competition between an authorizing school district and one of its charter schools in the unique area of dual immersion language programs. Um, my name is Sloan Simmons. I'm a partner out of Lozano Smith Sacramento office, one of the litigation co-practice group later, leaders who, who often uh, dabbles, if not spends a lot of time in student issues. I have with me today Megan Macy, also a partner out of Sacramento, who has one of our greatest areas of, of uh, bases of knowledge in charter school issues within the firm and also specializes in facilities and business and labor and employment issues. And we're also honored and and lucky to have with us today Dr. Daryl Camp, the superintendent of the Riverbank Unified School District. Dr. Camp has um, spent years in California's educational system and leadership, um, including positions with Lodi Unified, San Juan Unified, Elk Grove Unified, and New Haven Unified, all the way up until becoming superintendent at Riverbank in 2012. Uh, Dr. Camp has also uh, has prominent roles uh, within CSBA's uh, leadership in terms of governance and, and a, a close working relationship with AXA. And again, we're, we're really lucky to have him here today as we talk about the dual immersion programs within Riverbank Unified, both uh, which I'll, I've got tons of questions to ask these two uh, about it, but the RLA, um, and I'll let Dr. Camp explain that when we get there, which is a... a, a uh, dependent charter school that's been authorized by the district for several years as well as now a competing a healthy competing i'll call dual immersion now but dr camp will clarify that shortly uh, program run within the district itself uh, i think a place to start though and i'll look to you megan is you know all this kind of relates to we start from the charter schools act in california and its intent can you kind of lay the groundwork for what what the intent of that bill was and how has it played out? I'm curious from both of you too, how has that played out since its enactment and actually fostering innovation and healthy competition between schools and charter schools? Sure, thanks Thanks, Sloan for that that good wind up. It's interesting to kind of look at the historical perspective on the Charter Schools Act, which uh, you know is now over two decades old and it was you know, really the intent of the legislature, and this is right there in the statute, Education Code 47600 is the Charter Schools Act. It's only a few, few pages thick, but it's right there in the statute that it's the intent to provide opportunities to foster competition, to pr- provide vigorous competition within the public school system, to stimulate continual improvements in all public schools. And that you know, relates to improved pupil learning, encouraging the use of different and innovative innovative teaching methods um, and really things that are going to raise the bar for for everyone but you know and so megan that's that was the promise of the act right that sure. was the ideal and I, I i look to you dr camp you know before we get into the the, the nuanced and, and innovative program and dynamic you have within riverbank now what's your sense of historically 
the success of the Charter Schools Act meeting that, that intent? Well, I can talk just from our own local perspective because I realize every charter school situation is unique in itself. Locally in, in Riverbank, our charter school didn't charter, start out as a charter school. It was one track among three or four tracks in a multi-year system of education when our schools were overcrowded. So it's part of the district's year, a year-round right. program, one of its tracks. Right, okay. it was one of the tracks. And then what I think what happened was as this dual immersion track at the Riverbank Language Academy uh, became was, was growing, and they had nuances. It was trying to see how the tracks were going to be similar and different. And I think what a group of teachers decided was that, hey, this wasn't working for them in terms of trying to fit this unique program into a multi-year program. So a group of courageous teachers decided to explore uh, a, a charter school possibilities. So I think that's what happened in, in Riverbank. And over the last 10 to 15 years, we've really grown into what our relationship is uh, with our school district and our, our dependent or indirect funded charter school. And before, but I'm, for those, and including myself, that don't fully aren't up to speed on this, can you kind of describe um, the nature of a dual immersion language program or two-way language immersion program as well as um, I've seen in the from the Department of Ed this discussion of 90-10 versus 50-50 and what what how does that mean just to have a framework yeah, th for that's, it. The, part of that is all, all the technicalities with a dual immersion program of how you're going to deliver instruction to students and that was a local decision that was made of a 90-10 would probably be based, best for Riverbank based on the research and our population of students so that that really was a, a, a choice of the educators in our, our system there's plenty of research that says the 90-10 and 50-50 can work, but it usually depends on what your student population is. So Riverbank Language Academy mm -hmm. is the dependent charter school approved by Riverbank, and they're running a 90-10 Correct. program. Correct. Megan, how does that, how does setting up a, a program like this interact with the charter petition process? Sure. So just as kind of a baseline, we're throwing around some terms like dependent and independent right, charter right. schools. Those, those terms have no basis in the law, but what we generally mean by a dependent charter school is a charter school that's authorized by a school district or a county office of education, but authorized by a school district, and the school district has li fu fundamental liability for the actions of that charter school. An independent charter school is typically uh, operated by a nonprofit corporation, but it's still authorized by a school district or a county office of education. Um, or, or potentially the state board. Riverbank Language Academy is kind of an interesting iteration of a dependent charter school because while they are dependent, the district has full liability for, you know, if they were to go out of business, so to speak, the district would be on the hook. Um, financially, they really operate very, very independently. They have their own advisory board that, that handles most of the decision-making process. So... Is advisory board different? That's like... A a miniature version of a governing school board for the charter school, or am I getting that wrong? Essentially, that's that's correct. They are a miniature version of a school board, I'm, or or more advisory. But we we've we've had to go through some analysis to make sure that our the RLA advisory board is aware of their roles and responsibilities, and then our governing board, the local governing board. There were some questions in 2012 about who was responsible for what, and uh, but I think through a lot of conversation and dialogue we came to a, co a common understanding. 
What's the greatest, you know, with a dependent? I mean, I know just enough about charter schools to know that, generally speaking, independent charter schools have more freedom or less, less direct oversight from a district than independent. Knowing that this is unique and that it is a fairly independent, dependent charter, what are some of the oversight challenges that you would envision, whether it's for RLA or what you've experienced in the past of other charter schools, maybe in other districts? Well, if I have to summarize it, I would say we've now come to an agreement with respect to curriculum instruction assessment. We uh, usually allow the charter school to operate very independently in terms of those decisions. Uh, in terms of governance, we have had a lot of conversation about what it means. So what does it mean to have a, uh, a, a motion a second and a, a motion that's carried with RLA advisory board? You got a procedurally, just Robert's rules and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. and what it means. So essentially what we, we came to understand right now is that advisory board makes a recommendation to our governing board. And the, the Riverbank Unified School District Governing Board and then the Riverbank Unified School District Governing Board essentially, obviously 90 plus percent of the cases will approve the recommendations of the advisory board. So they're very much aware of the situation that's happening, uh, but they really lean on the advisory board to make decisions uh, with contract, with hiring, uh, and that's, that's sometimes, sometimes we do experience some difficulty, but in general, but if you're 90%, that signals a fairly high degree of trust. Yeah, it's higher than 90%. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think one of the reasons that that trust exists is because there's been um, a long process and multiple renewals of the charter petition. And, and just so everyone's on the same page, you know, the, the operations of a char charter school are really uh, governed within the four corners of the charter petition. And so that petition goes to the board who authorizes it. How often does it have to go back to the board? Every five years. Every five. And, and RLA has been a charter school for the district for how long at this point? At least since about 2008, maybe six. So before we get to Rame, the district's own program, and I think really get into how is this, what are we seeing in terms of that innovative competition between a traditional public school program and a charter school program? Um, where, what is the nature of the dual immersion program at RLA? What are the languages being used? And I want to ask legally, you know, the boundaries which, if there are any, um, from from which RLA can draw students to enroll. And then I'm curious, Dr. Camp, where are those? Where are the students enrolling in RLA residing? How about that? There's four or five let's have, questions. Let's Megan go first. And then I'll <laughs> well, let's start with the, the the legal part. Um, a charter school again is governed by its charter in terms of who who is going to enroll. They cannot discriminate against. Um, Anyone? Do they only have to? Can they only reside in Riverbank's boundaries? No, they can. They can pull from uh, the outside boundaries. Um, usually, a charter petition must have kind of an order of preference, and that's all spelled out in the petition. Each one varies, but you can As you in can draw. Who can from, enroll? Who gets to bump another student if two are enrolling at once? Type idea. Who's, right. Okay. Right, but you can uh, enroll from outside of the district, and um, that's something which Dr. Camp can, can yeah, talk well, about in that local experience. Yeah, so we, like I said, we're at a, a continual journey in trying to understand how this will work for us. Uh, back in the day when the charter school started, I mentioned that the school was, was impacted. Uh, and, but, but there were some differences within the school. In, in general, from 2008, uh, I want to say about 2012-13, uh, what was happening was the charter school was growing. And had, and had a wait list that developed in multiple years. And at the same time, the Bay School District was not growing, declining enrollment. 
So Riverbank USD was declining enrollment, but the charter, charter school, school was, was increasing enrollment yeah. and increasing at grade level with the intent of trying to open up a middle school component of the dual immersion experience. So what ended up happening, uh, essentially we had a high demand for our charter school with in-district students. Over the years, uh, that demand has, has sustained itself and we found through looking at the data that a number of students uh, over one-third of the students at the charter school are coming from outside of the district. Interesting. Yeah. So what, what uh, uh, you're within Stanislaus County, are we talking Modesto, probably one of your primary draws, or where, where are some of the other municipalities? Yeah, I would say Stanislaus County is, is almost a mecca for promoting dual immersion programs. We have several school districts, Turlock, Patterson, Modesto City, that all have dual immersion programs. Uh, so it's something that when I took over as a superintendent in 2012 and faced with a fiscal crisis and declining enrollment that we had to take a look at. Right. And it really is the, the competition. We looked at RLA was growing, our charter school, and our district's enrollment was going down. And we said we had to do something differently. Maybe there's more demand than we were providing the service for. So that led to, we call it RAME, which is the Rame. Riverbank Academy of Multilingual Education. It's ironic to me in some ways where, you know, sometimes you're thinking about, oh, we're going to take this big step. We're going to put together this big, unique, innovative program. And the immediate thought would be, well, no, I don't know if we can afford it. But this is an example where that unique, innovative program, not only can you afford it, it's actually more financially sound for the district to operate such a program. Yeah, that was part of it. The financial, the fiscal aspects was definitely a part. But also, the, what did the parents, what did the students, really parents at that stage, what did they want for their students in terms of education? So essentially, we said we weren't providing enough seats for our community, and I say our broad community, and I'm just talking about our attendance area, it was evident that we weren't providing enough seats for the demand. So RLA is Spanish-English. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about Rame. What are you doing there? Which I've, you've mentioned this before we got on, and I've, this is I, I, in reading the, some of the literature, didn't, I didn't even realize it was an option. Well, what you said, well, what's gonna, what can we do to, one, meet the needs of our community or the demand of our community? And then we said, well, what would make Rame unique? We didn't want to just start another RLA or dependent charter school. So we decided that we would look into several programs and then make the decision that was best for our community. And that's how we came across Rame. Rame didn't start at Rame. We had a think tank and advisory groups and what might this morph into. And at some point, the decision was made that we wanted to create a multilingual program. So it's a Academy, Riverbank Academy, Academy of Multilingual Education. So we said, you know what, why put limitations on our students? It's only a United States phenomenon. The kids are kind of limited to usually right. one, uh, but a stretch is two. And most students don't get exposed to the second language till they get in high school, middle school, if you're lucky. So we said, you know what, let's not put limitations on our kids. Let's, uh, let's try to prepare a kid that's going to be well prepared to engage linguistically and in terms of their mindset, cultural understandings in the Pacific, you know, the base economy of the Pacific Rim. So we just said that if students can get Mandarin, Spanish, and English, then the world will be theirs. So oh, at yeah, least the Pacific it. Rim portion of the world. And more than any, it's not just the language, though, it's thinking broadly and globally. So our parents got pretty excited about that. They, they, they say, oh yeah, we understand where you're doing. At that time, we made the decision when we made the decision, we knew that China's economy was growing, I think, three times the rate of the United States economy. And you know, all the predictors were saying that China might overtake the United States in 2050, I think it was, with the GDP. So we made the decision, let's try trilingual in the Central Valley. So 80% of our students right. are Latino. 
uh, and 80% are free and reduced lunch students, you say, you know, that's a that's an artificial barrier that we put up for kids. Kids are capable. What's your grade? What grade levels are you operating at wrong? We started right slow. We started at kindergarten, and and for the last four years, now we have a kindergarten through third grade. This was the first year that we had to put a limitation on the number of students enrolling at the kindergarten level. So, how many students in your kindergarten class at this point? Like, what what what, what was that cap? We start <clears throat> two <throat> kindergarten classes in one. TK or transitional kindergarten class a year. So now our TKs are becoming our Ks, which essentially uh, leave us with one kindergarten class that we have to fill per year and a, and a TK transitional kindergarten group. But as it's a, grown. As a kid, Dr. Camp, who played craps in his high school Spanish class, this is a very exciting and innovative program. And I wish I would have learned multiple languages when I was younger myself. There, there's still time. There's still there's time for time. craps or more, <laughs> multiple languages? Um, with, with that kind of framework, uh, let's talk about, you know, going back to the intent of the Charter School Act, this notion that charter a well-run charter school can be innovative in a way that results in competition with an equally well-run public school program can you guys talk about that dynamic both from a legal and policy perspective as well as how you see it playing out presently dr camp and where you see it going over the years go right ahead sure megan so like i said equally run we wanted we we didn't want to duplicate our charter school but we did want to consider what was working in our charter school and we considered the demand of the community and we said okay that's where rame came in into fruition where our our next stage, we wanted to, you know, create something differently, and that's where we are right now. So, uh, this idea of healthy competition is something we're promoting. We're now at the stage now where our teachers from our charter and our district program are communicating. They're trying to learn from direct each collaboration. Other. Direct the collaboration. We're trying to learn what's what are the promising practices, what's working, and so we're trying to learn from it. It's a healthy competition at this point. We. I mean, as I know, it's unheard of in a lot of charter school environments. We we bus students to our charter school. Dr. Camp, it, it seems like while things are on the up on the upside, and this is a, a this unique example of this innovative competition, talk about the challenges, the long term challenges that you've seen from when you started and had visions of of both programs operating at once to where you are now. Sure. There, there have been multiple throughout the ten years. There's been multiple challenges. However, you know, at this stage, we're at a, we're at a really, I think, healthy, good re- working relationship. Our, our challenges that we experience, I want to say, from the time from the time I became superintendent in 2012 to now, have really been involving personnel, governance, and personnel. You know, what do you do when you have employees that there's questions about whether or not they need to be employed? and who takes the responsibilities for those decisions, and how do you communicate those decisions. Uh, that's some of, the, some of the challenges. Obviously, I can't get into the particulars there. Correct. And then the financial or the fiscal aspects also. also. During the, the 2015 charter renewal, uh, we, it, was, it was pretty contentious. Uh, it, in, in such a way that I think, though, has led to greater understanding and... Contentious for what reason? Financial arrangements. Uh, when you're talking about arrangements with facilities, and in our case, transportation and special education, and our fee-for-service schedule model, right. all those were. I mean, it got to the point I know where our charter school would have an attorney different than Lozano Smith. We work with Lozano Smith, and they are very supportive in helping everybody to understand 
of the situation, the must-dos, the may-dos, and how, and given some possibilities of how it could work for our unique situation. So those are some of the challenges. That wasn't that wasn't easy, but I think we we at least were able to talk to each other, have multiple meetings, come to some common understanding, give each other enough space sometimes to kind of just reflect on what the information was, ask follow-up questions. That was a process, but I feel really good about where we are at this stage. Megan, what are the, you know, I'm thinking, well, it's a dependent charter. They're not coming, charter school doesn't come to the district's council for, for advice, or is there a, a mix? Explain kind of how that legal, um, that legal side works when you've got a dependent charter and in the dynamic that Dr. Camp just described, it, it's been a mix, and you know, and there was a time where there was some discussion around whether you know the charter school should be dependent or independent, and they were working with other attorneys. When the renewal came up in 2015, uh, there were times where we all sat in a room together and we talked about what the charter petition you know should look like, what the interests of the the two parties you know, in the relationship really were and how the financial arrangements were going to work out. I mean, one of the things, you know, we deal with a lot in the charter school world are Prop 39 requests and the obligation for the district to provide facilities for a charter school if you have over 80 in-district uh, students. And obviously this charter school has, has a dependent charter school and uh, with its students qualified for Prop 39 facilities, but the relationship over over time had been that they weren't reimbursing the district for Got for it. much yeah. so it was negotiating those mous just like you would in a kind of an independent charter school relationship but it's moved forward in such a manner that um, as issues have come up more recently you know we've been working directly with the charter school as well on you know on certain legal issues i know we're getting <clears throat> pardon me short on time but i do want to pose a question to both of you just mm -hmm. kind of as a left field item but i think something that's probably of interest to our listeners um, it seemed under the Obama administration in terms of the federal view on charters was perhaps a more favorable view of charters than had existed for some time, uh, at least in terms of a democratic administration. Uh, the sense I get, or if I'm reading headlines, is that maybe even more so now with, with uh, Education Secretary, Secretary Du Bois, is that there's an even more favorable view of charter schools. But I'm just wondering, from either of you, in terms of federal versus state involvement, control, interest, funding when it comes to charter schools, what's presently on the horizon, if anything, um, in terms of federal involvement, support uh, in, in the charter school uh, dynamic? Well, okay, from, a, from a policy perspective, it feels like there's certainly a lot of um, noise around charter schools uh, from the federal level and, and that that's a direction that um, along with some other policy issues, uh, the you know, federal Department of Education would like to push um, would like to push things. But the reality is is that we have the Charter Schools Act in California. It's a state you know education is a, a state governed issue, and there are you know some limited resources from the federal level. But I don't think that's going to really drive the conversation. I think the conversation in California is very different than kind of the more, uh, for lack of a better word, free-for-all free that's kind of happening on a more nationwide basis. Yeah, like, like Megan said, I, it's evolving. And right. I think even, you know, taking it from the federal to the state level and then the state to our own local situation, I think everyone needs to pay attention to what's happening on the federal and, and state landscape. However, there's so, every charter school is so unique, and I'm sure the relationship is very unique also. So I think it's something to keep an eye on. However, for us in Riverbank locally, I, uh, the federal 
conversation doesn't mean much to our conversation, really. Right. And uh, yeah, on the statewide level, we pay attention, but really, we are the strength of what we're doing right now is we have a good relationship with our charter school, and and I, I don't see that changing in the next few years because of the state and the federal conversation. It's been great to talk with you, Dr. Camp, and it's an honor for us to sit down and chat about this issue. Really unique program. I know your son himself has his own podcast, so you can <laughs> let him know that uh, that his father is also in the podcast mix at this point in time. Thanks, Kendall. Um, enjoy enjoy the rest of uh, CSBA's annual education conference, and uh, we really appreciate both you and Megan for spending time with us this afternoon. We do. Thanks for the opportunity. If you have any questions about this topic, please contact the hosts of this episode or an attorney at any of our eight offices throughout California. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. As the information contained in this podcast is necessarily general, its application to a particular set of facts and circumstances may vary. For this reason, this podcast does not constitute legal advice. We recommend that you consult with your counsel prior to acting on the information you heard.